0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials.
1: Today we're talking consumer goods.
0: Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma as we talk about the next pet focused business to hit the market Rover. And Asit, as I said that sentence, it occurred to me that when I heard this business was going public, I immediately jumped on it for industry focus without really thinking about whether or not this is a consumer goods company. Would you classify Rover as tech or consumer goods? Now I feel like maybe I need to send Dylan an apology note.
0: I think this is absolutely consumer goods, uh, Emily. And something in me has shifted since, let's say last year, pre-COVID, there are a lot of companies that are totally consumer focused, but they come at it with a lot of tech. So I have my own pet name, (laughs) not to have a pun here my own pet name for this category tech infused cg that gives us a little bit of space to you know blur some boundaries <laughs>
1: well I was clearly way too excited about the pet trend and the, the continuance of the chewy curve here if you'll call it that. Um so hopefully our listeners won't get a second episode over rover on Friday when Dylan comes on. But even if you do, what I will say is is that this is a business that I think deserves two episodes of industry focus because it is such an oddity and I think I think you and I I'm basing this opinion off of your notes that I've read. <laughs> I think you and I felt differently about this company. We kind of fell on two different ends of the spectrum here. Um, so, I'm really interested to talk about it in a bit more detail. And, and To
0: Emily, yeah. so you know how to dial up the intrigue because I'm wondering what I conveyed in my notes. I think we actually fell on the same side. So, we're going <laughs> to find out. <laughs> we're going to find out. I have no idea now, and you probably have no idea what I think about this company. So, <laughs> let's do this.
1: I'm so excited then. I have to say, before we get into the details, um, have you ever used Rover before?
0: You know, I haven't, Emily. At the uh, time or or the present time, I don't have a cat or a dog. But I spent some time on the platform last night imagining that I needed someone to provide a service on this platform for me today because I was busy in the one o'clock hour while we were going to record Motley Fool Industry Focus. So I became pretty familiar with getting Around the platform. Um, Pretty interesting interface. How about you? Have you used Rover?
1: I have. And maybe Ah, that is part of the reason why, uh, kind of foreshadowing my opinion here, I'm kind of a fan. Um, I've used it a lot in the past. Um, I live, I wouldn't say I'm in their target demographic, which is, you know urban areas. I'm on the outskirts of an urban area, uh, but I travel a decent amount, at least pre-COVID. Obviously, I was doing less of that in 2020, but whenever I would travel, I would find people on Rover to come and do daily check-ins on my very spoiled cat. I it was always a good experience. It was really smooth. I never had an issue, and I, I realize that's totally anecdotal. Everybody will have their own stories. But when I heard that this company was going public, I was like, "Oh, wow! I, I've used that before." Um, so I'm excited to talk about it in a bit more detail. And what I will say is, with all companies nowadays, this is a company that's going public through a SPAC. So we can kind of talk about some of its spacky details, <laughs> if I can call it that, before sure. we, we talk about the business itself, because it's always worth mentioning uh, just some of the added risk, I'll say, that exists with buying shares of a SPAC versus a company that is directly listing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is one thing that uh, I want to just quickly emphasize here. For those of you who are used to buying IPOs, let's say after they price, maybe you're not able to get in. On the action beforehand, which is perfectly okay. Uh, many of us, I think, at uh, the Motley Fool and those of us who are here on Full Live, have a mantra to not feel that you're going to miss out. You can wait a quarter or two with an IPO before you buy it. See how they perform. As soon as they're public in those first couple of quarterly reports. And the same with SPACs. I feel, um, yeah, they they have a lot of buzz at the moment, and there are many of them that are are going straight up after the mergers happen. But you've got time as an investor, and time's on your side, both in in terms of a holding period, but in time to evaluate. You should never feel uh, too pressured to get in on what seems like a good deal at the outset.
1: That's a really good point, and to kind of further emphasize that, uh, the they're being brought public through a deal with Nebula Caravelle Acquisition Corp. It's traded under under the ticker N E B C right now. But at announcement, and note that it's up six or seven percent since announcement. But at announcement, the SPAC had valued Rover at just over one and a half billion dollars in equity value. While that sounds smaller than a lot of the other SPACs, we'll talk about why. It might be a, a slightly more um, favorable valuation based off of the revenue that the business is doing today. Uh, so, don't yeah, I agree with your assessment there, Austin. Don't feel the need to jump in just because something is getting a lot of hype or a lot of attention. One and a half billion doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're looking at a business this size, it is already entering the markets. Probably going to be pretty frothily valued, although I guess that's par for the course these days. Sure. So, what can you tell us about about background and management here? I intended to add notes here, and the only thing I wrote is that their founder came from Microsoft, and you very graciously filled in the rest.
0: No, that's a, a great point. We have uh, a founder who's an industry veteran of the tech industry, and that's important to this story because. At the end of the day, I feel that this is a marketplace business, Emily, and we've talked about a few in recent weeks. So, you want to have a company that has a great interface and has an efficient platform on the tech side. We'll get into that. Uh, Aaron Easterly, the founder, um, had several fundraising rounds um, as he brought this company uh, into its present size. And this latest iteration happened after COVID. The company hit a uh, uh, Rough patch uh, during 2020, and their latest funder comes on the scene as as you mentioned nebula Caravelle acquisition Corp when they merge it will be called rover so rover is actually the acquiring entity. We'll get into like the nitty-gritty of, of how these SPACs works, uh, but at the end of the day, the company which is Rover now is going to be the the surviving entity um, and they will have a, a bigger balance sheet. the people who are backing the uh, blank check company, Nebula Caravel Acquisition Corp., are pretty experienced. They come from a private equity firm, um, which is called True Wind. And the CEO of that company, Adam Clammer, has been in the business for a while. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the sort of cutthroat private equity firm KKR, he worked in the technology division of that. So, the, the part of KKR that was focused on buying up technology companies. Um, and they've got several projects underway that are going to end up as SPACs. They also have a history of funding some companies that have come to market as, as technology companies. So, there's a good uh, element of... Sort of watch over your financials. That's coming from the funder, and Adam Clammer is going to stay on board with the CEO Aaron Easterly. He's going to stay on board as a director after this merger. Um, Easterly, the CEO, is going to have roughly five percent of the company, between four uh, and five percent, I think, close to five percent, and Nebula Caravel is going to own about uh, between 4 and 5% itself, depending on shares that are redeemed. Now, interestingly enough, Emily, you pointed out in our notes that outside uh, investors or or current investors are going to own a whopping 80% of the company. And that's because several venture capital funds that participated in the early funding rounds of Rover are staying on board. And I think that's a pretty good sign that there are three Funds in particular, which each have a stake ranging from 10 to 16%. That's always positive when your initial funders aren't just trying to have an exit with the IPO. Um, So that's a bit of uh, background about the management team and, and the funders behind them. Emily, what can you tell us about the actual business?
1: Yes, and I probably should have led with this. I think I started the conversation just talking about how excited I was to find someone to to drop in on my cat while I was out of town. But Rover is a platform that offers a variety of services for pet parents, uh, mostly in the United States right now. The services include boarding, house-sitting, daycare, dog walking, Drop in visits, Um, and they're even testing in home grooming in some markets. And the way it works is you can kind of imagine it like Airbnb, but for pets. That was the analogy that lots of other people have used. I'm not sure if it works quite the same here, but the idea is that the prices are set by the providers themselves. So independent providers sign up on the platform. They say, oh, I want to be a dog walker. Oh, I can have a dog stay in my house over the weekend, right? That's where the Airbnb aspect comes in, I think. And then they set their own prices for what a day or nightly rate would be for different services. Then people who are pet parents come onto the platform, browse through the different providers at their different price points, and pick someone to serve whatever their need is. And the the rates really vary based off what service you get. Um, I think the cheapest ones, you know, five to ten dollars on the low end per visit, are just simple drop in visits. So somebody coming by your house, you know, checking in that your cat is still alive while you're out of town, Emily, um, or as high as seventy to a hundred dollars in case of in home grooming, which is what they're testing in those in a few markets. So yeah, instead of booking yourself somewhere to stay, you can book your pet somewhere to stay. I guess.
0: Yeah, and you know, Emily, what really surprised me about the platform when I was looking at it last night, it's so user friendly. And uh, basically, I thought of it as I thought Airbnb is a really great example. I also thought of it as something like Fiverr as a platform. So, Fiverr is the freelance marketplace where freelancers can advertise themselves to buyers who need services. And the, the thing that struck me going through last night is when you, you put in a search, so I put in a search, of course, for today, I needed a dog walker. You get a list of very friendly looking people who have the top ones have great reviews and they all look very compassionate. And if someone's going to take my dog for a walk, I want to make sure that they look, um, you know, compassionate and friendly. A lot depends on that sort of visual cue. And they've, they've got that in spades. They also promote, I think, well rated people on their platform. So those return first in the results. The Airbnb aspect is pretty interesting because what you get is a panel on your screen which shows you the dispersion of um, map points and you can zoom out and see how close the people in that search uh, are. I think the first set of results you get um, are the people closest to you. The uh, platform, as I would mentioned, it's designed to be mobile first and it is really capital light. They run this uh, system on Amazon Web Services. That's their technology stack. So While they've got costs on their balance sheet that are basically internal software development capitalized costs, meaning they've spent some money to develop software internally, uh, they're not spending on a bunch of servers and they don't have this high expense to maintain things in-house, which I think is smart because that's really not the function of this business. It's really To unite these buyers and sellers of these pet services, they have a pretty good um, data team and tech team out of 200, let's say roughly 250 employees. 92 of them are data scientists, software programmers, engineers. So you can see that. Influence from the CEO coming from Microsoft, he made sure that this would be a really easy to use platform, and I think that's probably helped them scale uh, to this the size they are. Now I have to point out something that I didn't like, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be pointing out a cup, maybe two or three things I didn't like about this company, and I'm surprising myself that I'm interested. Actually, I'm interested in um, potentially investing in this. So I'm I'm a little bit of a, a reveal here. But um, the the offering prospectus didn't have any uh, age, income, or sex uh, demographics provided. They do mention that millennials and Gen Zers are leading this sort of movement to higher uh, pet ownership, which will benefit the company in the long run. But this is very unusual for a marketplace business. That's a key focus in the offering document to show for a marketplace, hey, who are the buyers? Who are the sellers? Are they, do they tilt more male? Do they t- tilt more female? How do we target them? So I, ha- I had to do a little scan of my own. And, okay, so talk about anecdotal and, and just a little bit of data here. But I looked at uh, several different cities, and I did the same search for this time slot. And, Emily, you, you can probably speak to this because you use the platform. About 85% in most cities, sometimes 90% of my search results, at least the first 60 or 80 that I looked at, were women. There are hardly any men represented, and when they are, they're very friendly-looking men. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know what this says. There's something to be analyzed here. I'm sure the company is uh, utilizing this in how they target um, what they call providers, the people who are there to, to walk your dog or, or to look after your cat, um, but they didn't really give us good information on what it means to them. And this is something that companies like Etsy or Poshmark, we talked about recently. Fiverr. Uh, all these companies that are marketplace businesses excel in their offering documents and in their 10K annual reports at showing you who, who buyers and sellers are and, and what it means in terms of age groups or incomes or, or whatnot. But okay, so a first minor quibble, quibble here, but uh, is that is that your experience, Emily, when you look for someone to take care of your cat? Are most of your results uh, you know females? They look like to be young females to me. So-
1: yeah, this is actually really interesting, and I'm I'm happy you pointed it out because I read through their offering prospectus, their investor presentation, and it didn't even occur to me that this was missing. But it it would have been such an interesting addition if they had chosen to add it, uh, because I think I have the same curiosity as you. And even if it were the case that the majority of providers or even pet parents did skew female or a certain age that's valuable ways that you know we can identify a target market here but it's funny my experience was very similar to yours i the first time i used rover opened up the app was looking for somebody to do drop in visits on my cat while i was out of town and i knew i'd be handing over my keys to my apartment to whoever i picked and i don't own anything valuable i'm not a materialistic person so i wasn't particularly worried uh, but i did purposely look for somebody who looked compassionate and I picked a young female and I thought it had something to do with the fact that I'm pretty close to the University of Maryland I figured there was a fair number of college students that were doing this on the side right to make some money while they were studying so I picked a young female I assume college student who dropped in I rebooked with her numerous times and then she moved to Louisiana And the next time I got on the app, I was devastated. And I ended up picking another woman, admittedly an older woman this time. But I based it entirely off of reviews, the number of repeat bookings. And if you look at their metrics, the metrics that, while they don't provide demographic metrics, they provide some metrics about uh, performance, I guess, from their, their pet service providers and uh, 87% of bookings on Rover are repeat bookings and 70% of new customers uh, rebook. So pretty impressive once uh, somebody's on the on the platform itself, pretty impressive retention there and 97% of those reviews are five star reviews uh, largely because if you sign up for the platform, it's actually like you're getting graded too similar to the Airbnb effect. I knew that, that I, I wanted um, this great pet sitter that I had for the first time to want to come back when I was out of town again. I was worried my cat wasn't going to be on its best behavior. <laughs> she did an initial drop-in visit to make sure that the cat wasn't distempered or something. Uh, so really, really interesting. They provided a lot of details about uh, booking metrics, but virtually nothing about the people who are using the platform, and that's odd
0: yeah it is um maybe it's just more of a missed opportunity it's so interesting because what you just described is something that i thought might be the case that there's gonna be a bond that you set immediately different than transacting again let's go back to Fiverr you uh commissioned me emily to do some graphic design now i know what graphic design needs you have and I'm terrible at it but let's just let's just suppose here and uh yeah it's a great work product you like it that's all good you know next time i have some need i'll I'll remember that guy Asit, the, the freelancer, and I'll use him again. But if it's about your pet, this is a person who's coming into your home, as you said, and uh, there are all kinds of um, just emotional bonds that are in play here because you want the person to take care of your, your cat. You feel relieved when they do a good job. They obviously are relieved to find you know a new customer who's who's nice and cat's relatively easy. It's much different than let's say even an Etsy experience where you're, you're buying and selling crafts good. And there are some sellers on Etsy that I really like that we've used more than once. But this is something that is surprisingly sticky for that reason. And that's the strength of the platform, the nature of this business. Take care of my pet means if it works out the first time for both parties, it's likely to be recurring revenue.
1: And we can talk about, I know that you mentioned the notes a little bit further down about how that is potentially a risk. And we'll, we'll get to the risks associated with, with kind of the nature of the services that Rover provides. But before we move on to some of their, their metrics, I think it's worth breaking out their revenue segments. Uh, When you think about the different services that Rover provides, uh, 54% of their revenue actually comes from boarding services. So these are people, presumably people who are dog owners who are leaving town, uh, who, don't want to take their dog with them wherever they're going or can't take the dogs with them, but also don't want to leave them at a shelter, or not shelter, that's not the right word. I'm not a dog owner, clearly. Um, at a at a boarding house.
0: Kennel. A kennel. Yeah. A kennel. Ah, that's sure, the word.
1: Sure. At a kennel. They want to leave them with somebody who they believe is going to do a good job of taking care of them the same way they would. So they find somebody on Rover with great reviews and they board, and that's over 50% of their revenue. But their other aspects are house sitting at 14%. So this is somebody coming in, staying in the house, uh, living in that residence, taking care of the animal on premise for a certain amount of time. Uh, 5% for doggy daycare, um, 12% dog walking, and then 14% drop-in visits, so somebody just coming in, checking up, and then leaving. Um, grooming is less than 1%, but they're only just testing that, so that could potentially grow in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And that grooming is, uh, I- I'm guessing it's going to be a high-margin service because they described it as being uh, an, a service with, with some uh relative to the other services some some additional revenue or incremental revenue versus let's say you know dog walking
1: and, and briefly here before we we move on to their metrics or I should say their financials um it's it's worth taking a look at at how they make money and, and this is one of the things that I thought was really missing from their prospectus documents which was uh while they charge a fixed fee to both the provider and the pet parents, they're not transparent about what that fee is. They provide an example inside their investor presentation that seems to imply it's something like 25% of the gross booking value, of which 75% of that is being taken from the provider. 25 from, taken from the pet owner. But there's no implication that that actually is the case. It's simply an example. So it could be an example of what they want to do in the future. It could be an example of what they've done in the past. But there's really no transparency about what that fee is in terms of boarding, house-sitting, daycare, how it differs from the different services. That was one of the things that I thought was really missing.
0: Yeah. It's it's uh, something that you have to consider as a management team the first time you offer documents to the public, and then actually in your 10k annual report, you get an opportunity once during the year to really fix those metrics. And you you can uh, you know if, if you disclose it, you can fix metrics along the way or add new ones in your quarterly reports. And obviously, you can talk about them on conference calls. But this is important because sometimes companies will hold back a little bit because they know that you know our fees probably aren't where we should have them. So we're just gonna sort of message about our fees for now and and we'll bump them up and probably disclose them later on. But being transparent is in your interest as a management team because the investor community, be it retail investors like you and me, Emily, or the institutional investors that sit in on the conference calls and ask the questions, those questions are good for you. They show you where investor sentiment is. What's holding people back from buying more of this stock? it's because you're not giving maybe enough detail or the detail that investors want to be able to uh, make decisions. So, I yeah, I wasn't a fan of that. The example was was nice, but I'm hopeful that uh, you know in these first quarters, maybe that's something that they talk about on the calls or start putting into the quarterly and annual reports.
1: And one of the things they did want investors to focus on, maybe less so than what their actual take rate is, is the market opportunity. And Rover, yeah as with every pet company that's going public right now, really highlighted what a transformational year 2020 was, especially on the back of a general transformation in the way that people have been treating their pets. And While 2020 in particular wasn't great for Rover because people weren't needing to board their pets or, or walk their pets as often because they're at home, um, they did still say that there was a huge increase in pet ownership over the course of 2020. Uh, so that within itself is potentially interesting. I can't remember the exact number uh, that it grew year over year, but it was pretty substantial. And uh, Rover believes that they can really unlock a large amount of value in their market opportunity, raising that from around $9 billion today to over $70 billion, uh, which is a huge increase and we can nitpick that later. Uh, But essentially, they're saying they can get to $70 billion in yearly market opportunity just off the basis of increasing the number of households with pets, uh, further penetrating the US market as pet households grow, and then also continuing MA activity in, in new international markets and expanding there as well. Um, so there's definitely, I think, very real tailwinds that exist for pet businesses right now. I will say they did cite one one study, and admittedly it's from the American Pet Products Association. So take it with a grain of salt. But that study found that of dog owners and 28% of cat owners would prioritize their pets' medical needs over their own. and While that may not directly implicate sales for Rover, I think it does perfectly highlight the trend of pet humanization that has just simply taken the pet industry by storm over the past decade or so.
0: For sure. Anyone who Knows a pet owner whose uh, cat or dog has gotten sick, or or maybe you've been in uh, these shoes yourself, you understand probably the the verifiable truth behind that study. I am guessing that's not too far off. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things really quickly about that um, opportunity. They don't have control over the percentage of households that that are going to increase in terms of having pets, although they're right to point out there's a growing trend for that and that's spearheaded by younger people. They also need this catalyst event to get customers. What they talk about in the offering prospectus is that most of the time you're going to reach out first to friends and family when you have a pet care need. You need a walker or someone to watch your pet overnight. When you can't get that, that's the first time you sort of look out of that boundary. So, potentially, some uh, sharper marketing, and we'll talk about they've got a really nice. Um, thing going on with their marketing, we'll we'll get to in just a second. But perhaps some targeted marketing to make sure that that brand awareness, which is, I think, pretty big, it keeps growing so that they don't have to wait for the first time you've got this overnight need. After that, everything breaks open. Then you feel comfortable with getting a walker or someone to groom your pet. They need to move beyond the catalyst that's helped them so far.
1: Yeah, and part of the reason why I think Rover is such an interesting play is typically with companies this small, we see them sink a ton of money into marketing expenses. And while Rover has certainly spent money on marketing, it wasn't nearly as much as I expected when reading this prospectus, largely because of the word of mouth aspect of this business. Um, their their marketing expense especially as a percentage of their gross booking value and that may not be the best uh, i guess top number there we can talk about what gross booking value kind of lacks a little bit later but the idea being that marketing expenses as the business has grown has come down as a percentage of that revenue over course of time and and the result is largely because of people um, like myself who used rover and then tried to cat sit her friend's cat had an awful time doing it, and then recommended that my friend try Rover next time. Um, it's those sorts of like natural marketing experiences that have helped keep this business in a slightly better financial position than I expected heading into this report.
0: For sure, Emily, you know the the expense to market is one of the really big drags. On most of these capitalite companies that are using technology platforms, you have to acquire customers. So, if word of mouth is doing on both sides of the, of the platform part of the job for you, that is a path of least resistance. And I was impressed that not only is it from the people who are purchasing this, the service, but word of mouth spreads to the people who are providing the service. So, um, obviously, if I um, have a successful couple of outings, Walking pets. I'm going to tell my friends who are pet lovers too hey, you know, I I made 20 bucks an hour um, doing something I love. And that seems to be another part uh, or advantage of this platform. I will point out that for the business model to work, uh, Rover actually needs an oversupply situation in each metropolitan area it enters. So it needs this dense network of available sitters so that when someone like me um, takes a look, he is shocked. (laughs) I was shocked last night. It's looked like from the zip code, I mean, are all my neighbors on this platform? Because in my zip code, I saw so many people coming up that were offering for 15 bucks or 20 bucks to watch my mythical dog or or, or made up dog, during the Motley Fool Industry focused podcast. So they need this. It means that some of those people are going to drop off, right, without ever getting any work. So they're going to have a lot of churn, if you will, on the provider side. But since the word of mouth is so incredible, they're not spending a ton to draw that part of the platform over. It's so pretty impressive there.
1: And when I look at their financial picture, I think it's worth maybe skipping 2020 as a whole, and we could argue whether or not that's silly, but I I think 2020 was such a a weird year for pet services that looking at 2019 numbers is probably more representative of what you can expect a business like Rover to do in the future. Uh, So when you look at the 2019 financials for this business, when you look at the 2019 financials for this business, they did just over $400 million in gross booking value. So that's the amount of transactions that happened on their platform, not including cancellations. So there's a fair amount of cancellations that aren't included in that number. I think historically it's hovered around 9%, uh, but they did over $400 million. You know, minus nine percent in 2019. That was a 31 percent increase year over year, and represented over four million different bookings. Also a 30 percent increase year over year. Um, 2020 was harder, but 2021 it looks like growth is going to reaccelerate. Although it's worth noting that management still doesn't know what COVID is going to have, what impact COVID is going to have on their long-term need. If people work remotely, 2021, 2022, it could look Substantially more like 2020 than 2019. Um, I'm not sure if I buy into that quite yet, but 2019 by itself, in, in terms of of growth and year-over-year numbers, looked pretty solid.
0: It did, and you know, they're looking for the travel industry to pick up. That's one of the key indicators for Rover that travel picks up again. So when Emily starts traveling for business, she's going to obviously use the service more. And you know, going back to that marketing ex- expense that you mentioned earlier, Emily. If we look at the first uh, nine months of 2020, as you said, they're not a good nine months to base what the future of this business looks like. I mean, revenue uh, nearly got cut in half, but that marketing spend dropped from about 37 million bucks down to less than 14 million dollars. And as a consequence, when you look at the bottom line, because that expense and some expense control, they actually had. A round of layoffs uh, during COVID. They took a PPP loan of about eight million bucks. But comparing the two bottom lines, the operating loss was not that much difference. Even though revenue, as I said, nearly got cut in half, the operating loss in the first nine months of 2020 was about 45 million bucks versus 40 and a half million in 2019. I really like that because it shows the power of that word of mouth. And we we didn't mention. I was going to mention this. And those of you who are watching today on Motley Fool Live can put this in the comments. They apparently have a super blog that has millions of unique views every month. It's called um, The Dog People. And I'm looking at it now. (laughs) It's got a super cute cat with green eyes under a rug just peeking out. And it says, this is the lead um, on the the top fold of the website. The, The article is, why is my cat hiding from me? There's almost a compulsion to click on, read that story about this cute cat, so I can see why this is another way that they um, don't have to spend on marketing because the subject matter this platform is based on is has such an emotional pull. I like those numbers, but Emily, let's take just a minute and talk about what's a little iffy on that um, gross booking volume metric. Yes. Maybe you can start and then I'll chime in.
1: Definitely. Uh, so. I know that what's probably a lot in a lot of people's minds are like, okay, well, what is, how, we see how much they're doing in gross booking volume, but how does that translate to actual revenue? And in 2019, while they did over $400 million in gross booking volume, they did about 95 million in revenue. If you just took the revenue over gross booking volume and or value, and you can take that down by by 9%, right, to account for those historical cancellations, you're looking at a take rate between 20 to 25%. And so that might make you think, oh, this is a a business that's able to charge really high fees. But there's actually a time lag between when a service is booked and when Rover recognizes the revenue on its income statement. So, um, revenue is only recognized when the service is actually provided, not when it's booked. So, there's this weird time lag. So, if I know I'm going to be out for Christmas this year, maybe I book someone really far ahead of time. Um, while gross booking value may represent a certain number and, and booking value that I've made on the platform. Revenue is a different story. So it, it, it can take a few quarters, if not longer, for investors to see a potential drop off in things like earnings or things like revenue, right? Like platform growth because of this lag.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the little uh, beef I have with this metric in general is that it's it's a good indicator of potential. And what they say in their prospectus is that we think this tells us something about our business. The total amount that was booked on our platform, let's say in a business quarter, it means that if no one had canceled, our actual value of dollars transacted would have been X. That's well and good, but it makes it extremely hard to track just what you're talking about, Emily. What what is the actual take rate? And they don't publish that. So the gold standard in these um, types of businesses, to me, is probably PayPal. They they track this metric every quarter: the take rate um, of what they're making off of each transaction. Of course, PayPal is a payments business, not really a marketplace business. And they have their gross transaction value. I forget what their acronym is. They're they're all slightly different. But the concept is you record everything that actually happened on your platform. Don't worry about cancellations. And in many cases, don't don't include taxes, which this company does. But I don't want to quibble any further. Because I like the company in general. I know <laughs> I'm sounding like, what are they doing? But uh, what you want to do is to show investors. Here was the gross service value. I'm going to call it service value because it's not merchandise. This is the gross service value. This is every dollar that actually went, you know, between credit cards on our platform. And here's our take rate. That's the best case scenario. The reason is you can trend those two quarter in quarter out, and there are many companies that provide that. So if the trend is accelerating, it can work against uh, Rover's favor because investors can't see that growth clearly. They see that the gross booking value is increasing, but then they're looking for a cancellations percentage and they're uncertain about the future. Better not even to focus on that. Just show me the volume, show me the take rate and then as I see it increase, I'm going to buy more shares. So it's another matter of transparency, but I'm not really going to knock on management yet because they're they're not public. I'm hopeful again. You know, first quarter Maybe even during the conference call, they give the numbers that many investors who are into these marketplace-style businesses are going to be looking for.
1: And, and to your point about maybe not even wanting to broach the subject of cancellations in terms of metrics, um, you would think 2020 would be a good reason for them to potentially change their metric focus because uh, cancellations in 2020 were upwards of over 20% of gross booking value. So it's it's it is an annoying kind of metric for investors to have to break out, but. I always like kind of salivate. I get really excited whenever I see a company that breaks down its customer acquisition costs and the lifetime value of its customer. And I thought Rover did both those things really well. In fact, I I appreciate the fact that they were very upfront about their guidance for payback in terms of the amount of money they spend to acquire a customer versus the amount of money that they get on the customer while they're on the platform. and Management's internal projections are to keep a one to two-quarter target on payback for customer acquisition costs. So Even if marketing spend increases, especially as this business tries to move internationally, if that is what they decide to do, uh, keeping a narrow focus about what the value of that customer is, I think is critical. So I like the fact that they have these internal metrics that they're holding their teams to. And right now, that that is around a four-month payback period for existing customers on average from each of the cohorts that they've tracked. So I like the fact that they're pretty on par with their own projections there as well.
0: Yeah, they, they have a really nice payback period. Anytime you're under a year, you're in good shape. So I like those as well
1: although always worth noting that yeah, this is an uh, entrenched industry where it's easy for people to to slip back to what friends families uh, move to different platforms so it is great although probably not as sticky as say a chewy <laughs> which right. admittedly has a much longer payback period but what I perceive to be a much stickier platform sure and you noted something interesting here uh, before before we move on to the risks in this investment because as always there are Plenty of risks. You notice something here that I completely missed that is actually really, really cool.
0: Yeah. So the company has a, a partnership that they announced in November with Walmart, which I think is re- going to be really good for them. So uh, in this partnership, Walmart's going to offer. And If you followed Walmart, you know they're also trying to get in on this premium uh, pet business and pet humanization business, pet services business. They actually offer Walmart pet insurance now. So um, they're going to include their version of the new pet sitting service through Rover. Uh, and they've done this with so many companies. Uh, they, they sort of co-brand the services and uh, basically they'll encourage you to use Rover and they will give you, if you're a Walmart customer, a 20 Walmart gift card for your first completed service. If you have five services within six months, you'll get another $20 Walmart gift card. Now, I don't know which of the companies is actually picking up the tab <laughs> for this. Um, I'm guessing it's Walmart, but maybe they're splitting the cost. It wasn't clear in either press release. But this is a, a really nice uh, tailwind for them on the marketing side. Again, they're leveraging something without having to spend a lot of their own hard dollars. And who else would you want to, you know, be with? But a company that is in every major metropolitan area and has millions and millions of customers. So I thought that was pretty neat. They did not put it in their offering uh, prospectus, which was post November. Um, and it really, if you look on their website, they haven't made a big deal about it. So it's something that uh, I think. I missed two, and I was just pouring, you know, the last minute over stuff, and I saw it. So we'll see if you happen to be watching today, um, and you've seen this already in play. Let us know.
1: And when you look at the risks for this business, obviously the partnership with Walmart is, is risk mitigating within itself. Anytime you pull on a big partner like that, it's um, you know you at least have some big backing there. And this is a business that's been around for a while and has great executives, but. It is still a business that's unprofitable. And I'll highlight I have a couple big risks. I'll highlight one that I of course have to call out at the very beginning because it's making me really question my morals as an invest investor. Is that Rover has uh, material weaknesses and in their <laughs> internal controls. And this is, I'm showing a level of hypocrisy here that I try not to show when I look at investments. But I'm almost willing to forgive it because, with a lot of these SPACs, uh, these are businesses that never thought they were going to be public companies, especially multi billion dollar public companies on such a quick uh, flip of a dime. But when the opportunity exposes itself, I mean, they, they need time to get their internal controls up to par to be available to retail investors. And that being said, I will say (laughs) this might be the worst uh, material weaknesses and internal controls I have ever seen. And I I manage a cannabis portfolio, so sometimes I feel like I've seen it all. Um, But they had issues that included no control environment, not enough personnel with accounting knowledge, no formal procedures for financial reporting, and no IT controls, which is shocking considering how many IT people they have working at their headquarters. Um, I said it before that I would. Not buy a company that had substantial material weaknesses. I really like this one, though. I really like it, and I, I'm—I don't know. I'm going back and forth with myself here.
0: Well, again, you know, we go back to the idea of waiting for a few quarters. Not—not not that you have to wait, Emily. Uh, you are you seasoned than than almost you know everyone listening today, including myself, who's participating. So maybe you're the the, the person who could make a judgment and just buy in when it comes public. But for many of us, it it could be worth the wait, like I said, a couple of quarters. uh, To give just some uh, interesting notes on the situation, So Emily pointed out in our notes uh, what, what she was talking about, not enough personnel on the accounting side, and really the opposite of robust financial procedures when you close out a month and lack of segregation of duties, that's in the internal control. So to me, that's a fraud signal. So if you don't properly segregate duties, it means I've got access to passwords and user data, but I also have a way to extract something valuable out of that. Or if you're in the accounting department, I have access to paying vendors, but I also have checkbook access and I can create um, different documents. So if you're a small company, you may not have had to deal with this. Although I should say, you know, they're of the size. They should have had better procedures than this. And reading between the lines on the report, basically the auditors who came in and did the auditing for the SPAC they had to do a lot of closeout entries. And so, this is something that's very interesting. When a company gets audited, a lot of times the auditors are cleaning up the books and management is signing off on the journal entries. So, they, they say that this is not really in an auditable, auditable state. You need to have these journal entries to make the, the balance sheet and, and income statement work out together. Um, but we've looked at the transactions. We don't see fraud here. And we're not going to cite it in our report. So, if you notice in their report, they say management found these. Lack of internal controls and, and material weaknesses. Well, management's been running the company, so what do you mean they found it? That's because the auditor told them, Look, you, you got to talk about these and we got to fix them. Um, and Emily, they don't have a, an imminent SEC requirement to fix those, but they do have a Sarbanes Oxley requirement, so they got to hop on it. And they noted that we're working on it. We're going to spend a lot of money on this. We're going to try to fix it soon. So, Let's you know keep that sort of at the top of of the the list when you're looking in at that first quarter. What's happening with work on those internal controls? But yeah, that they were ugly. I they must were say.
1: ugly, right? <laughs> Honestly, yeah. your accounting background is so useful. You told me a lot of stuff I did not know there.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's so interesting. Also, Emily to, to find someone who who loves this stuff because I know many analysts just their eyes glaze over when you get to that part of the auditor's report, but you always read it and I'm sure it's gonna save you some grief later on. By well paying let's attention hope so. To that. There, so.
1: There have yeah. been a number of companies that I've passed on because of, of I concerns such as internal controls that have gone on to be amazing investments. Uh but you know even I have my risk limits, I suppose.
0: Um so you know I'll go with a quick one here. And these are s- smaller risks and then maybe we'll just alternate and uh then we'll we'll round out of here. But there is a smaller risk of deplatforming of transactions. And what I mean by that is something I alluded to earlier that emotional bond and someone coming to your house to do the services it's very easy for two people to say, look, let's just do this directly. That way, neither of us will have to pay the fees. And I like you, you're really great with my pet and I don't want you to have to pay a fee. I'll, I'll pay you that $20 directly um, and vice versa. So uh, Rover has developed some algorithms that they think can help them spot providers that are doing this. I'm not sure how they do it, but they then demote those people in search results and try to keep promoting people that are uh, to them or their algorithms just using the platform honestly. But as time goes on, that could be a little bit of a risk. And then I just wanted to go back to my little problem with their gross booking volume metric, Uh, that inability to accurately know what the take rate is and to to put those things on a trend, plus what Emily brought up about the revenue, revenue recognition not taking place until that service is performed. And, and, and Therefore, what you've got is a situation where the metrics could decline pretty quickly, but you might not necessarily see that, as Emily pointed out on the revenue recognition side, for a few quarters. Combine that with the lack of visibility into true volume on the platform and a true take rate, I could see a situation where you have two or three quarters where stuff is really slipping, but you just don't see it when you're looking over those uh, quarterly reports.
1: Before we close out here, I'll, I'll highlight a couple of other kind of big concerns that I have. Uh, I'd say the first one is just concerned that as more people bought pets during the pandemic, I think a lot of people who maybe made that investment were also people who took on a more remote or distributed, uh, a, a more virtual lifestyle that will likely persist even post-pandemic. So I worry a little bit about the growing need for things like uh, dog walking if somebody's home all day. I-, I think that's somewhat mitigated by the fact that boarding in particular represents over half of Rover's income, ro- over half of the services that the business provides. I think vacations, I, I don't think those things in particular are going away. So. At least that I think they're they're going to retain, but I wonder a little bit about what true growth looks like, which brings into my my biggest risk here, which is, yeah, this is a business that did 95 million dollars in revenue in 2019, less in 2020, but let's be generous, 95 million dollars in 2019, and is having an uh, over one and a half billion dollar valuation. And management even notes that growth is slowing. And that long term projections have them around 20, 25% growth with 30% adjusted EBITDA margins. So this is not a really, really high margin SaaS company. This isn't even a company that's growing 50, 60, 70%. Uh, this is a steady, but slightly slower grower with a very normal profitability picture long-term, they're not profitable right now, but long-term, hopefully a somewhat normalized profitability picture that I'm not sure justifies the valuation that the SPAC has given it. And I I hate making calls based off valuation because 99% of the time they're wrong, especially in the market that we're living in today. But this level makes me a little bit concerned.
0: Yeah. It's not cheap. The flip side of that is if you Sort of look at your SPAC type investments as their own diversified portfolio. Here's an interesting company that would be sort of a steady grower, and over time, I think it's going to have a pretty high return on invested capital. It's it's debt free right now. They've got a cash infusion, so they'll have some money to play with. They they have been an acquirer, but haven't always bought uh, companies that succeed. I think one of their most recent investments they basically had to sell. Uh, I think it was called Dog Hero, uh, but Over time you can see this business, Emily, sort of creeping up on your results just sort of stealth, (laughs) because it is such a sticky platform. I think that market, while maybe it's not that huge, huge market potential they're talking about, but if it is seven or eight billion dollars, right now international sales are five percent of the business. It's gonna take some time for them to expand globally. The other, I think pet markets are slightly different than the US. They're gonna have to prove their brand but they've got you know some definite advantages on their side so it's it's odd because i i'm sort of liking this i want to follow it for the next couple of quarters i could see i could see taking an interest in this company um same way you know we've talked about some slower growth stocks like dollar general it's intriguing
1: I love I, I don't, love the I don't fact know how I ended up like liking it. this company. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the fact that you like it because this is a, a business that I, I want to be convinced on. I think I come in from a naturally skeptical place and I like when there's another person I'm talking to has that higher level of conviction because you're telling me everything I want to hear right now, Asit. Uh But I will definitely, I'm putting this on my watch list. Uh, I hope that in the somewhat near future, and by near future, I mean, not the next quarter, but with the next four quarters or so, this is one that if management executes, um, if we see some sort of rebound in 2021 in comparison to 2020, that hopefully this one ends up in my portfolio. I'm definitely interested in it. Perfect. Well, Asit, as always, thank you so much for coming on and uh, humoring me while I I organized another episode focused on pet trends. I really appreciate it.
0: Emily, this was great fun. And I know in the future, if I ever want to pitch a business for you to invest in, it's going to have something to do with pets.
1: (laughs) I can't help it. I obviously have a type here. (laughs) Uh, But listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool On!